Welcome everyone to the Wild Podcast. My name is Bianca Barros. I'm one of Wild's founders and I'm your host for today's episode. In case you're wondering, Wild stands for Women in Leadership Development. Our work aims to help women fight oppression, stigmas, and constraints that stop them from achieving their full potential and to empower women to be impactful, conscious, and innovative leaders. In this podcast series, We will feature Thrillblazers political scientists that are opening paths to women in politics in the U.S. In today's episode, I'm joined by my co-host Mia Schumann, a junior double major in psychology and politics at Menlo College. Mia and I are joined by Dr. Jennifer Lawless, who is the Commonwealth Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. Jen's research focuses on focuses on political ambition, campaigns and elections, and media and politics. She's the author or co-author of six books, including Women on the Run, Gender, Media, and Political Campaigns in a Polarized Era, and It Still Takes a Candidate, Why Women Don't Run for Office. Her research, which has been supported by the National Science Foundation, has appeared in numerous academic journals and is regularly cited on popular press. In this episode, Dr. Lawless talks about the Trump effect on women running for office and her research about how women can combat gender stereotypes when running and in politics in general. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lawless. It's really a pleasure to have you here oh, with us today. Of course. I think I'll start with a question that might be in all of our minds. Uh, your article talks about the Trump effect in 2018 and how it motivated women to run for office for obvious reasons. Do you think that now that Trump's gone and Kamala is elected, like how do you think the Trump effect will last or do you think it will last at all? Well, I think that the Trump effect that we saw nationally was pre-running for office. So we know that Democratic women in particular were more motivated to be participatory and they were more enthusiastic and angry about politics, which generally led to higher levels of engagement. And those levels of engagement are a key stepping stone ultimately to running for office. So although there were a few hundred extra female candidates running in 2018 and then again in 2020, I'm not sure that that was technically the Trump effect. I mean, that might have been women's organizations doing a better job recruiting women. Most people that think about running for office because they're motivated by something like Donald Trump don't throw their hats into the ring within seven months or eight months, which would be the next cycle. And so I think the Trump effect itself is probably going to take a few election cycles to shake out. And I would expect that these women who sort of got their sea legs and became more participatory and became more politically engaged now have the ingredients to think about turning that into a candidacy. So my bet is that 2022-2024 will see the the real uptick um, if in fact there was a Trump effect. And, And 2020 is interesting as well because that was the first time in a long time that we saw a significant increase in the number of female candidates on the Republican side of the aisle. But keep in mind that the gender gap in ambition is roughly the same size on both sides of the aisle. So, you know, that doesn't suggest that any, that, that Trump's mere presence has closed that at all, right? On both sides, a handful of new women, and that's great, decided to give it a shot. But, you know, the socializing forces that keep women from running from office 
are probably more deeply embedded than any one individual candidate can offset. Um, I was really excited to have you in class because I have been reading a lot of your work. Um, something that I'm interested in is when, in one of your articles you published, you um, entering the arena. I thought that it was interesting how you mentioned like how women are less likely to run for office because they feel less qualified. Is there other things, other aspects that can make women that men don't have to do more qualified? So men, like, are, like they can have a family, they can do all these things, and they're like picture perfect. But women, are there extra factors that have to that have to be played in to make you more of a qualified candidate? I mean, I think that's an excellent question because it really speaks to the perceptions difference. There is no evidence to suggest that women have to be more qualified than men to run, or that women have to balance things any differently than men do. But women perceive that they have to. And in politics, perception is reality. So that article, which was um, the basically the cornerstone of my dissertation, then became a book. Um, it takes a candidate why women don't run for office, and then it still takes a candidate why women don't run for office. And there we did interviews with about 400 of these potential candidates, like hour-long interviews trying to get at um, why they thought they were qualified or why they thought they weren't, how they might get around those um, self-perceived limitations. And a few of the things that we found suggest that it's not necessarily that women perceive themselves as unqualified, it's that men perceive themselves as overqualified. And, and by that, I mean, for example, we asked people, well, if you're gonna describe a qualified candidate, like what would that person need to look like? What would they have? And in general, the women that we interviewed said, you know, a law degree, a business degree, connections in the political arena, a lot of money, the ability to fundraise, childcare arrangements, right? They named all of these things that would be very difficult for any one candidate to have. And when we asked men what made people qualified, they said things like passion and vision. So it's a lot easier to have passion and vision than three advanced degrees. And, you know, so that, so that was one thing. The other thing that we noticed when we were studying these qualifications was that women were more likely to hold themselves up to a hypothetical bar. So they would be like, well, the ideal candidate would have experience in the business sector, would have political connections, would be an excellent public speaker, would have the ability to raise money, would have you know, a lot of um, managerial experience. They would name all of these things that an ideal candidate would have. They would say they don't have all of them. And they would say that the people that are currently in office don't have all of them and they're not qualified either. And then the men would say things like, well, my state senator is a moron. I'm at least as good as that, right? So it was, a, so they were holding, so the men were holding themselves up to the lowest common denominator and the women were holding themselves up to a bar that nobody could ever actually meet. And, and as a result, I think we go down this path of women thinking that they have to keep acquiring these credentials when in fact the voters, the donors, the media haven't necessarily made it necessary for them to do so. And I, I'll just share one example with you. I was presenting some of this research um, at Emily's List, which is an organization you know, that tries to get Democratic women to run for office, Democratic pro-choice women. And in those conversations, the, the president of Emily's List was saying that she worries that you know this qualifications gap and all, the, the way that a lot of organizations have responded to this qualifications gap is to offer additional trainings for women, right? To help make them feel like they're qualified. 
But she said her experience is that these women are now getting on a hamster wheel of trainings and just taking training after training after training. So now they've added to their list of what makes them qualified. Well, I have to do three dozen trainings too, right? And so it's just perpetuating this cycle of like, you're never going to have everything, everything that it takes. So, um, I mean, I think the, the best solution is recruitment because what our research shows is that when somebody is recruited to run or encouraged to run for office, that does a big, that, that exerts a big effect on boosting their own self-assessed qualifications. And that's something that can actually be done as opposed to telling a woman, oh, also go back to school, get a PhD. And while you're there, take 36 trainings. Do you think, sorry, this is a little bit, um, I'm not sure if this makes sense, but if you if you start candidacy and you start putting out all of your flyers and information out first and you do everything correct, you, you do all the data um, and a man is running opposed and doing the same thing, but a, like maybe less work, who like scientifically, who's more likely to win? I'm, I'm assuming the man because I've seen it even within our like even Menlo community. So I want to see. But um, is there anything else a woman can do to defeat those gender stereotypes? Well, so first I would note that in partisan elections, gender stereotypes no longer play a role. Um, party stereotypes have pretty much subsumed them. So in national survey, so, so we've known since like the 1980s that when women run for office, they do just as well as men um, in general elections and in primaries, but if we focus just on the general elections, we, we've known that. But in a lot of in a lot of um, scholarship, there's been this assumption that it, that's been sort of predicated on the idea that well, women do just as well because they've figured out a way to counteract these stereotypes, and they're better candidates. They navigate the process more in a more sophisticated way. That they're able to like get these voters to vote for them despite the fact that they have this liability of being a woman. But since about 2010. Um, survey after survey reveals that voters actually are no longer stereotyping male and female candidates in general elections. And so what happens is you ask people, you know, so traditional gender stereotypes um, are that the four biggies are that men are likely to be perceived as more competent and stronger leaders than women. And women are generally seen as more empathetic and as having more integrity. And so what these surveys, many of which I've conducted have revealed are that when people are asked about the Democratic candidate, if they're Democrats, they think that that person is a great leader, very competent, has a lot of empathy and a lot of integrity. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. And if they're a Republican, they think that that person is a terrible leader, incompetent, has no integrity and no empathy. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, right? They're making their decision almost entirely based on whether there's a D or an R in front of that candidate's name. And so we're no longer stereotyping based on sex when we have a party queue. Now, when we don't have that party queue, like congressional primary or in an, a nonpartisan local election, that's where gender would have a bigger opportunity to influence. And there, we actually find that even explicitly sexist um, comments about somebody that it, that's meant to, you know, sort of gin up everything that you might think about in stereotypic terms. The, the distribution of sexism in the electorate now is such that it's sort of the, the net effect is usually positive for the woman. And so by that, I mean that there are some sexists out there 
who, when they're given an opportunity to vote in a primary or in a nonpartisan election, will never vote for the woman. And they'll be even more inclined not to vote for the woman if the man lobs gendered attacks at her and sort of makes her gender salient to the voter. But there are more people in most districts and in most localities who are so offended by that approach that there's a backlash effect. And so even though there, there is stereotyping, and even though there, there are examples of attempts to make gender salient in a negative way, society has evolved sufficiently such that it's not, there, there's not sort of a systematic detriment for female candidates. Um, and so, you know, I think that the more and more that we see women running and winning Republican primaries, for example, we see evidence of that. Because if you look at national surveys, the Republicans, Republican um, card carrying Republicans are significantly more likely than Democrats to score high on what we call the modern sexism scale. So they're far more likely than Democrats to be leery about women who are working outside of the home and who are giving up their childcare responsibilities and who are fighting for equality in the workplace and who think that sexual harassment's a terrible thing. Um, they're much more leery of those people. But even they don't like explicitly sexist or stereotypic attacks um, against female candidates of their own party. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that women have to spend that much time running away from or figuring out how to overcome stereotypic conceptions anymore. I do think that the one area that we don't know that much about um, that could provide more of an impediment to women than we think is fundraising. So we know that on election day, women and men um, who are similarly situated to so like incumbents versus challengers versus people running for open seat races, women and men raise equal amounts of money. We know that they come from different sources um, and they have different supporters, but their overall totals are roughly the same. And so we generally say, oh, look, there's, there's parity, there's equity. Um, I ran for Congress in 2006 in a Democratic primary and fundraising was, I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing. Like they tell you, oh, you have to spend 35 hours a week fundraising. And I laughed at that. I thought that's not possible. It turns out you actually really do have to spend 35 hours a week, like calling people you've never met, asking them to give you more money than they can possibly give, right? That's how you spend your time. Um, and I did it and it was fine. And we raised almost half a million dollars. And like in 2006, that was a lot. I lost the race, but it, it wasn't because of money. Um, and, but what I realized was when I would look at these donors records by election day, they basically did give me the same amount of money that they had given previous candidates, right? So if there were people that had generally given $1,000, I got $1,000 from them, but it was often in like increments of $250. And if there were people that would give the maximum at the time, it was $2,100. For me, most of them did give me the 2,100, even though, you know, the same way that they had given other candidates 2,100, but they'd give me like a thousand first and then finish out that maximum contribution with a second call. And I haven't studied this systematically. The Federal Election Commission reports are just impossible to wade through and read. And I'm sure graduate students today are far more sophisticated at how they could go about, you know, collecting these data. But my hunch is that it takes women more time to raise the same amount of money. And time is finite. And when you're on the campaign trail, that means that you have to be better and more efficient at everything else because donors are not responding to you as efficiently as they might to men. And so that's one area where I think what look to be gender neutral outcomes might actually still be quite, quite gendered. Um, and money is a major factor when you're running for office. So, you know, I think that that's, that's a potentially like real barrier.
Well, well, but I thank you do that to them, but thank you so much <laughs> for coming and talking. To oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and good luck with your project. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to the Wild Podcast. We're really excited to see you at the next episode. In the meantime, stay wild.